one other area I want to ask you about is related to tools and specifically technology and digital health. You've done a lot of work in that space, and I'm curious what you see as particularly promising ways to leverage technology and digital health in traditional public health programs and strategies. I think that the challenge that we're going to face in in some of the some of the work, particularly if, as you're interfacing with public health and social services agencies, is they're they are not digitized as as much work as we did as a country in the last decade to to create a clinical record that that's electronic, and that's giving us much better insights into the clinical care experience gaps and care opportunities. For patients, uh, we, we've got a, we're going to have a lot of work to do as a country to see that the partners are digitized. What's, what's been emerging in the space is probably um, three, three things that, are, that I see happening. One is that electronic health record systems are starting to build out tools that their, their clients in the healthcare world can use um, to connect with or help digitize the social services partners. Some of this was spurred by the accountable health communities model, some of it by the various Medicaid models, and some of even the, the private sector across the country. So it's kind of a healthcare focused pushing out with a new digital tool that creates essentially a portal for your social services partners, and, and you can have some bi-directional communication and start to build data there. The, the second area is um, a suite of tools that either are marketed to healthcare and health plans or to the social services sector. These, these are tools that some, some people may be familiar with like Healthify or Tab Connect or NowPow. And in some cases, the, con the contract is with the Department of Social Services or the city health department. And in some cases, it's with um, a, a local consortium of health providers. So we're seeing some variability in who's gonna own the license. But what's interesting about those tools and others like them is that they're interoperability platforms, basically, and, and they provide then also some, some dig, digital underpinning for the social services infrastructure. The, the third thing that, that is the, to watch for people is, is when an existing digitally driven company becomes a social services provider. So think about the rideshare companies like Lyft and Uber getting into transportation and doing that focused on, on, on health transportation. They already come with a pretty good digital a platform, and they're able then to share that information with the health system so that everybody understands if the patient got picked up and was dropped off and 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 has a little bit more a little bit more detail in there. So that and health systems are using different strategies depending on where they are and and how strong their partnerships are and and how and and how many other resources that they have they have available. I have a bias, which is I really like to, to see us modernize, including with technology, the social services infrastructure and help it move from being more of a cottage industry into one that's, that's a lot more transformed and professionalized in the way that we've helped primary care and um, the rest of the healthcare system across the country, just because there's a lot of jobs and content there that, that we, we don't want to lose the humanity and the skill. But on the other hand, it's going to be very difficult for them to keep up with the demands of, of not only the high-cost high-need patients, but the entire population if we get to a place where risk models, um, payment models are going to want, want health systems and others to address not only medical needs, but social needs. Yeah. No, it's interesting when you, when you contrast the time now with value-based payment mechanisms and providers and the 1990s, and you try to imagine 
managing mm. a population of people using, you know, paper records and having these file rooms where you couldn't really search for anything, and it's probably very hard to get a sense of of what indices actually you were making and, and really trying to mm. measure that. Uh, now should be much easier, and I guess you can imagine the same thing should hopefully eventually be true for social service agencies. Yeah, I worry a little bit that that we're ahead of them. Um, well, I'm, I'm going to rephrase that. It's not that I'm worried. It's that I think uh, we are ahead of the, them as partners, and so there's going to be all this pressure uh, not only, again, from the state's Medicaid programs that are already involved in this work, which is over half of the states are already asking you know, their MCOs to look at social determinants. And as I mentioned, some like Massachusetts or Minnesota or Oregon or, or Rhode Island are already moving into to a world of, of downside risk um, as, as a part of, of where they are in that continuum. It's also Medicare, and, and it's Medicare not just through accountable health communities demonstration, but the recent call letter about Medicare Advantage really expanded the um, opportunities for Medicare Advantage programs to address the social determinants of health. So there's a lot of activity on the healthcare and the payer side, but when they reach over to find a partner in the, in the community, they're gonna be under-resourced in, in all the ways that that word means. And it may, it may look like in some of the early evaluations that it doesn't matter to address the social determinants because there's not an infrastructure to meet the needs. We don't have enough healthy food or housing or transportation available. And so until we get smarter about solving the wrong pocket pocket problem where if a healthcare system or a health plan saves money, that money can be reinvested in the social services infrastructure. So that's a pay for success or impact bonds sort of a model. I, I, I don't I don't think we're gonna I think it might be like we tried to do with value in the nineties. It may not look as effective or we may just have such small small data or, or evidence to support it, it won't be able to go to, to, to spread and scale in the way that, that it is now in the health system. So I hope we, we get smarter this time around and, and we have a way to really digitize our partners, but, but it's not just about digitizing them, it's helping them be uh, good partners because there's legal issues and private data privacy issues and, and they're non-covered entities. So there are data sharing um, issues that, that are already starting to, to come up in these communities where they, they just want clarity about um, who, who you know who can share data and what can be shared, what is the consent mechanism, and and who's going to host it. The, the list is, is getting interesting and long, and there's people working on sorting through it. But the, the field is moving very quickly, is what I'm saying. And I think we really need to make sure not just the evidence is there, but the policy is there and ready to to help guide this really exciting but also really important work around social determinants. Yeah. Ultimately, it seems like it would be nice to have evidence. On for a particular population of, of people, or better yet, for a given individual, if you had X dollars to spend, where would the return be greatest in terms of improving that individual's health? And it feels like we're not, you know, we're not quite there. It seems like, as you pointed out at the outset, the common approach has been to assume that if we ensure access to health services, that health will improve. And when you look at the impacts on health of, let's say, the Medicaid expansion in Oregon, and you know the effects on health actually weren't that big. It, it's clear that there are a lot of benefits to having health insurance and reducing anxiety and reducing the risk of financial catastrophe, and that in itself is important. 
but mm -hmm. for a lot of people, it may be more about health behaviors and social determinants that are really holding them back, uh, and it may be that it's more cost-effective to make some of those investments. I mean, ideally, it wouldn't be an either-or situation, but I think we have to recognize that sometimes providing health insurance is alone is not enough if health insurance is really limited to providing access to medical services. That's exactly right. And and so you remind me of a couple of things that I want to make sure that people are aware of. And and one of them, you mentioned that I'm on the board of Humana, is that Humana has has published in this area that if if you can improve self reports of, of healthy days, which is um, a composite outcome uh, based on some of the for CDC-based um, uh, mental health and physical health days, uh, if you can improve those for a member, uh, you can lower healthcare costs by $15.50 per member per month. And a lot of that lift seems to be in the area of addressing things like food insecurity, um, and so uh, we're involved in in doing a randomized trial to understand the best ways to address food insecurity. But it's one of the first, if not the first, kind of social determinants related randomized trial that, that, that will start to not only build the evidence, but think about an actuarial basis or get, get us closer to a place where we can start to put a number on it to your point, because we have to know not only what the savings are, because that also tells us if the expense matters and where we should, where we should be spending those dollars in order, in order to save and improve and improve the health of people. And a lot of the um, scientists who are involved in this area are, engaged in a group called SIREN, which is the Social Intervention and Research and Evaluation Network that is based at ECSF and run by some, some scientists out there and is really just a virtual research network to get to this place of can we build the evidence base, try to not only stay ahead of where the field, the, the practical applications are in the field, but to inform field work and inform policy work. And, and so I, they're a good example of the rapid dynamism that's causing people to come together and say, this seems important. We need to understand it better. The science base isn't as strong as we'd like it to be. And, um, but, but we certainly want to, want to know, we, we certainly are recognizing as a country that you can't just provide insurance or really great clinical care. There's more to this. And we want to be able to have a strong scientific foundation for, for, and a strong financial foundation, frankly, for understanding the business case and the value proposition around addressing the social determinants. Yeah. No, I think that's that's a very exciting area, and I'm hoping that there'll be a lot of very valuable new evidence that gets generated in the next few years, because clearly we we need that in terms of uh, of giving payers the confidence that they can invest in different approaches that might actually improve health as much or more than some conventional clinical services that are being covered. We're, we're almost out of time, and I want to ask you about a, a slightly different area around patient engagement, since that's one of the main themes of the catalyst. And one of the big challenges health providers and the public health community face is getting people engaged to either can't uh, or don't prioritize future health and well-being, often because they have a lot of uh, competing priorities in their lives. And Many of those patients, of course, have poorly controlled chronic diseases, and I'm wondering if you see any particularly promising avenues in terms of making it easier for those patients to prioritize their future health. 
Well, let me let me begin that by um, reminding everybody about William Osler's comment that um, the good doctor treats the disease, the great doctor treats the patient with the disease, which um, seems to be borne out in some evidence that if you ask people about their lives, which means asking them if they have a place to live and if they're you know if they have social networks, et cetera, the sorts of uh, things that you that that um, show you're interested in the context and you're not just treating their disease. It actually is linked to improved um, adherence to medication and control of chronic disease. I'll tell you that it is intuitively for as a doctor um, that resonates with me because when I build a relationship with my patients um, and it's not just over their disease, but it's about them and and how together we're going to be either preventing or treating their disease. Um, my anecdotal experience would be that we, we things always uh, went better when they were with me, but also when they were trying to self-manage at home. But I also know that um, is, uh, this is not going to be solved by the physicians um, alone or the healthcare system. And if we really want to help people to stay healthy, to stay on a care plan, to get healthy, whatever the goals are for them and for us, we have got to re- remember that they're away from us most of the time, they're free living beings, and think about how our care plans can be translated into uh, mostly into virtual medical homes that can be with them on their smartphones or on their wrists or on their smart speakers. Um, and, and then also in the humans that we would send to their house and, and that would be part of their care teams, we're going to have to really distribute the model more. We've been, I think, too focused on as doctors um, on are our patients not compliant because they're not listening to us. But like that's a normal thing for everybody is that when you leave the doctor's office, you forget exactly what was said and you need a lot of nudges and reminders and assists. And this is why I think it's so exciting to be at this point in the world where we now have enough data to actually start to use artificial intelligence and, and do some machine learning that can mass customize care and services and care plans to our patients, and, but also that we, can, we, the health system, can be with them and they can be with us because of the, the connectivity that, the, that we can enjoy through technology, whether it's because they're on their wrist or in, 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 a, in a smart speaker in, in their kitchen. And, those models are just starting to emerge. It's really thinking about having, you know, virtual members of the team. And, 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 and when I say team, I'm including the patient as part of that team. I think we're going to learn a lot, though, about, um, about how being with somebody outside of the clinical environment is going to help them to stay well. But I'll just go back to the thread of this whole conversation and this, and this point about treating the patient with the disease. We've just really got to, to remember that it's not enough just to give the right dose of the insulin. We've got to know if somebody has electricity or if they have a house um, and, and if they can afford the medication. It's just as important for their, for their health outcomes, and it seems to be um, obviously important to them because it's linked to them wanting to be more engaged and, and feeling more that people are, are with them on the journey and not prescribing stuff that doesn't make sense for their lives. That makes absolute sense. and. Karen, it's really been great talking with you. I thank you for sharing your perspectives with the New England Journal Catalyst audience. I think a lot of people will be very interested in what you have to say and what you now go on to do at at UT Austin. So thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Kevin. It was great talking to you.